Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Focus Compound is sitting alongside my co-founder, Jeffrey Gannon. Everyone knows who it is. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going well. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if you are not following me on Twitter or following me on YouTube, definitely check those two sources of content out. That is at Focus Compound, and then YouTube is Focus Compounding. Also, Jeff sends out a weekly email uh, at focuscompoundinggazette.com. So if you want to get on that email list, definitely check us out there. So in uh, a couple videos ago, we did a video on how to read a cash flow statement, and they got one of the most highest engagement rates that we've ever had mm-hmm. on uh, the podcast, which I thought right. was interesting. I think a lot of people like these how-to videos, yeah. uh, especially through Twitter. So I thought in this video, we'll dedicate uh, an episode to talk about return on capital, return right. on equity, and all forms of return mm-hmm. on capital. Um, you know, So maybe we could start with return on equity first, okay. um, you know, which obviously we think about, and you know, return on equity, maybe what measures do you use? And, and we always talk about this, how in finance, there's a bunch of different ways to calculate, I guess, something, um, you know, a, a term that people like to use often. Okay. For example, people talk about return on capital, but everyone has their own way of doing it. Yeah. People talk about EBITDA or free cash flow, and there's like four different ways to calculate free mm-hmm. cash flow. And maybe it is different to every single company, um, but maybe we could just start with return on equity, how you calculate it, and how you think about it. Sure. So, uh, return on equity. The easiest way to think about it is that some companies are going to have uh, net cash, some companies are going to have net debt, and some companies are going to basically have neither. And what you're thinking about first is what would the situation be if it um, wasn't using leverage? That's the first thing to think about. So what's the on-leverage number going to be? And then the other thing you would probably want to think about in terms of uh, if you're buying a stock, you might be buying a stock that has net cash. And if you are doing that, then you want to think in terms of what the actual reported return equity is too, because the risk you have is if they sit on a lot of uh, cash, right? So like Berkshire Hathaway is sitting on a lot of cash right now. Um, that might bring down their return equity, even though their actual return on what they're really investing is good. So you want to think about both of those things and, and try to use um, multiple methods so that you're thinking about what's the worst that could happen to me here. And the worst in like a, a stock with a lot of net cash is that actually the cash won't be put to good use. So you want to do the calculation that way. Like I own a stock, George Risk. Um, I would guess that on an on leverage basis, if it had just um, only had the return on the uh, capital that was invested in the business, and then you took out like um, taxes and things like that, it probably earned a 30% return on equity. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little better now. Tax rates are lower, so probably now would be better. Um, whereas I think when I owned the stock, the actual return on equity was like in the low, uh, I mean, in the high single digits because it had so much cash. Most of its balance sheet was cash. Mm-hmm. So in special situations like that, you want to think in terms of um, what it could be with you know having that much extra um, cash on the balance sheet, because that's the reverse of leverage. When you have cash, it brings down the return that way. Um, but what you start with is just inherently what is the business going to generate. And that's always the thing I start with, is the actual day-to-day business, what's its returns like. That's the most important number. Um, so how do you come up with that? 
Well, it's easy to calculate, but better than that is to actually think about it in terms of like how the business works and things like that. Um, we were uh, happened to be in a mall together, and uh, I pointed out like a store, and I said they don't carry that's they don't really carry their own inventory. Basically, they bar they show you inventory that someone else owns, yeah. and that's a very big thing for a jewelry store. Um, and that kind of information that you have is helpful in thinking about the business, and that's what you need to know is not just fixating on the number, like you know the magic formula or something like that for calculating it, but actually thinking why does it have the returns that it does? Is it because it has a lot of receivables, a lot of inventory? Is it because it does? doesn't have inventory is it getting customer prepayments things like that it really helps you figure out the business right right it's kind of like when munger says people calculate too much and think too little yeah exactly that's exactly me and so like we talked on some podcast about tandy leather and their issue tandy is um they have a very high amount of inventory and some of that inventory might um be old and outdated and need to be written down and things like that but in addition to that they just don't turn over the inventory that quickly mm-hmm. um and so it, you know it's it's a risk that they have that way that means that a lot of the um, earnings that you get in, are not going to be in the form of cash they're going to be reinvested in more inventory which is going to be a constant problem that you have in my experience companies businesses rarely change from being something that had a high return on capital early in its history to having a a low one in the future or vice versa. There's some things that can change about them through better operations and stuff, but things like the working capital cycle almost never change. So if a company needs a lot of inventory, that's probably almost always going to be the case, even for a a long uh, period in the future. One... uh, a good thing to think about is in terms of what's causing the low return on capital. Yeah. Or, you know, if it's a high return on capital, that's fine. But is to think about what constrains the company. What what does it need to do that is limiting its return on capital? So I would think almost like imagine could this company have an infinite return on capital? No. Why not? And we're, um, are we still talking about return on equity here? Yeah. yeah. Just any I mean, form of yeah, capital, I mean, it, any form of return on the capital investment right. business. Yeah. So a return on equity, for instance, um, it could be leverage. So a normal company that you invest in um, publicly, a publicly traded company that you invest in, is going to have a limited amount of leverage. Compare that to private equity, for instance. So theoretically, yes, you could have a very, very high return on equity because private equity would do that. They would put that much leverage on it. But realistically, this business is never going to have that much leverage. So that's something to think about. But in other cases, it'll be something like um, the amount of uh, inventory they need or the amount of they have to invest in stores before they produce earnings from them or whatever it might be. And uh, I find that very useful to think in terms of what's limiting them. Um, so like, uh, a good example would be, um, take the cruise industry. The, the cost of a cruise ship is very, very high versus its sales. So the issue is not, can we, you know, extract more profit from that or whatever. It's just that the cost is so high that since they have to finance the cruise ships themselves, um, realistically, they're very constrained in terms of their return on equity or something like that. But I recently read a book, um, Railroader, which is about railroads. It was about one person's career in railroads. And what's interesting- Hunter Harrison. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is the ability to get down the expense rate that they had. So this is a really good example because what happened was a lot of railroads have had better returns now. And their better returns have been by becoming more efficient. But it isn't in relation to how much sales they're generating, how much revenue they're generating versus their asset base. It's just by taking out expenses of actually running the railroad. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly you see that something that was generating a lot of sales versus its um, asset base, which railroads were, uh, they had good sales turnover. But what they didn't have is uh, very wide margins. And so if you have those really wide margins, then you can um, suddenly have really high returns on equity. And that's what happened with them. And so sometimes that's the kind of thing that often 
is where you can actually run things better and like the returns can be much higher than you thought. A good example of that too is like in media and stuff, same as with railroads. If you look at like, uh, Buffett always talks about um, Tom Murphy and Capital Cities and all that. Well, Capital Cities would have the same assets as the same media properties as other companies and they would just run them with a lot lower expenses. So if you're finding that the reason is the company has really high fixed expenses, that's the kind of thing that could be fixed mm-hmm. in the future. Yeah, that could be uh, better management. Because you could, you could like that. cut that out. Yeah, I mean, management has a lot of control over things like fixed expenses. That's the kind of thing that often is an indicator of operational efficiency. Uh-huh. The things that often aren't are things about the timing. That's the biggest one is the timing of when you have to put in money into a business. If you find that a business, you have to put the money up front into it a lot, and you only get paid back slowly over time, that's a very rough business, and it's hard to fix that. And you can look at peers in the industry and stuff like that to see what the returns are. But um, yeah, anything where you're, you're carrying a lot of inventory receivables, property planning equipment, those are the things that I focus on. Um, you know, you want things where that those numbers are low and where you get a lot of payment up front. What are your thoughts? So to calculate return on equity, mm-hmm. Are you taking like a net income number to just the 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 shareholder equity? How do you typically do that? Yeah, so the return on equity, I mean the most useful one is the free cash flow number. So okay. free cash flow relative to tangible equity. Um, so the true cash on the right. true equity in the business. Yeah, so the free cash generated versus versus the uh, tangible equity. Intangibles aren't important for calculating for a business. Now, intangibles can be helpful in understanding whether the company's um, management's decisions for like acquisitions and stuff have paid off or not. So like I just read the Bob Iger book, they acquired Pixar, they acquired Marvel, they acquired Lucasfilm, and then they did the the Fox deal. So you take all those, um, they had significant goodwill in all those cases. Now, what the tangible number is going to tell you is basically, is Lucasfilm a good business or not? Is Star Wars a good business or not? Yes, it is. But did they pay too much for Star Wars? They may have. But the truth is that once you've done that, you can't fix it and it doesn't matter anymore. The next Star Wars movie they make will have good returns, even if they pay too much for it in the past. Mm-hmm. So that management's past mistake or you know making the right decision doesn't matter going forward long term. It's only, So intangibles are not useful information for understanding how the um, company is going to perform in the future. It's only giving you just a record of a few transactions sure. in the past. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of people like to use intangibles because it uh, a lot of value investors talk about including intangibles because it'll give you a lower return equity number. It feels like the more honest number. And that's true if you've been an owner of the business the whole time. Yeah. So the return equity, including intangibles, is poor. That may be because and your return in the stock is poor. That's probably connected. But going forward, it doesn't really matter because if there's another CEO in there, if they don't make the same acquisition decisions they did in the past, it doesn't matter. The tangible number is very important because that's the thing that tends to be consistent throughout the future. You know, And like when Buffett talks about uh, the returns in different things in Berkshire Hathaway, what matters to him in terms of uh, uh, management and saying, well, did management do a good job or not, is always the return on their tangible yeah. uh, capital that they have in the business. It's never uh, including the intangibles because that's just a judgment on whether he paid too high a price. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in this world of capital light compounders, yeah. right, what are your thoughts on return on incremental capital? That's the most important one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one we care the most about. It's almost impossible to calculate. 
yes. I mean, the way you do it and the way we've done it is you kind of get a feel for what you're, it, yeah. it's high. That's it. Like, yeah. It's, it's very high. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it, the, or it's low or whatever, right. but it's, it's hard to slap a number on as well. Yeah. The problem is that, so the useful number for return on incremental capital would be if you return on incremental invested capital. capital yeah, right. So, I don't know if so I said that. the idea is like if we add a dollar into this business today, how much is my return on it? Yeah. But the problem is that things are moving inside the business so that the useful number is the shortest period of time we want to know this very last dollar, the marginal dollar. Yeah. But so much about it is changing right now that it's not helpful. So, like, um, uh, the measurement that you get is weird. So, for instance, uh, Breeze Eastern, right? So, Breeze Eastern for years invested in R&D and stuff to launch new um, models that they mm-hmm. would be on. But then once they would get that business, then they would have it potentially to make spare parts and things for it for, like, you know, 30 years or to do maintenance on it for forever. So, if they invested in doing this work for the new Airbus, whatever, and then that model was a success, then they would have great returns on it for a really long time. But the people in the stock might complain because they'd say, oh, your returns on incremental capital are terrible right now in this phase, yeah. but then they're great after that. Uh-huh. And you see that over and over again. Um, I wrote about a company in which we th- suggested buying the company. It was when I was writing a newsletter because uh, they had invested in a big new warehouse, a new centralized warehouse, which had significantly more capacity than they needed right now. And then it would be five or more years until they would fill up most of that capacity. Well, if you do that measurement of return on incremental capital, it's going to tell you that it's a dumb decision when you build the warehouse. And then it's going to tell you that it's just getting like infinite returns as it's filling yeah, that up. Yeah, yeah. But really, you you just are filling up a warehouse that you had built in advance for that, mm-hmm. right? So what matters is kind of a, judging those decisions that they make. But in terms of looking for what kind of uh, returns I expect going forward, I'm looking at what I think management's actually going to do with capital today. Uh-huh. So like if their um, returns on equity were poor or something in the past, but now I'm figuring that they're going to buy back their stock and their stock's really cheap, then I would be willing to buy that stock expecting really high returns in the future. Uh-huh. And that happens a lot where I uh, switch from having not been interested in a stock to deciding to buy it now. It's usually because of a change in capital allocation yeah. because I realize that they're going to do something that is a better use of their capital, mm-hmm. right? So it would be something like that. And, and that's why looking historically at a company can be difficult. I mean, I was looking at a company recently where their historical returns uh, were not that great because they issued a lot of stock. But then recently, they've been buying back a lot of stock below book value. And you have to judge whether you think there's been a real change in the attitudes of the board and the CEO and everything. But if there has been, you're suddenly going to go from having 5% type returns on equity to like 15% on the new money that they put in. But over time, that means that it's going to raise the return on equity closer to the incremental number, you see. Now, I know the answer to this, but maybe... Uh, people listening are thinking this. Do you do any sort of forecasting when it comes to return capital? Is it more so, you know, you you learn about what they're doing and you kind of form your opinion for there? But do you do actual any like forecasting of that? Uh, no forecasting, like, or is it really just to decide? Okay, it's a great business. I understand what they're doing. They generate high returns, mm-hmm. and then you know, kind of move on from there. Yeah, so no forecasting in terms of what I expect returns to be in the future versus now. Yeah. It's not like I say, okay, I don't do like a DuPont analysis where I say, okay, I think they're going to improve their turns by 1.5 yeah. times versus <laughs> the 1.3 that they have now. And I've seen some models that, that do that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so I don't do that. But you know what I do is I look at what I, how I expect them to, uh, what uses of capital I expect them to have. Mm-hmm. So I do look at here's their earnings. Like say they tell me they're going to earn $4 uh, next year. 
I ask, okay, are they going to pay out $3 of that in dividends? Okay, how much is that worth? Mm-hmm. Are they going to use a dollar to buy back stock? How much is that worth to me? I use like a, a weighted approach to um, blending together the rates of what I expect their returns to be. Mm-hmm. So I definitely look at what I think they're going to use the capital on. Yeah. And when there's a shift in what I think they're going to use the capital on is when I shift my expectations about what the return on equity is going to be and things like that. So yeah, I, I do that by predicting what their future uses of capital are going to be yeah. and what their returns in sort of each category are. Like if they bought back the stock, how much do I think that return will be? A dividend is just worth a dividend to me. But um, an example is like we own NACO, and I was saying to someone that um, they put some money into a, a, a mine that's consolidated. They actually have to put up the capital for it. There's one of those that they own. and Everything else they don't put the capital in for. And uh, they have to do it because they have a deal with the customer to supply them. Yeah. And my point was I value each dollar they put into that business at less than 50 cents because I do a calculation where I say, okay, well, they're taking a dollar that, you know, in another company might be paid out to me or something or used to buy back stock or whatever, a dollar of earnings. They take a dollar of cash earnings and they reinvest it probably like 6% or something is my guess. Not a very good return. Um, So something that someone takes and reinvests at 6% a year forever is to me worth less than 50 cents on the dollar. And Mm -hmm. there's a calculation you can do of why that would be the case for me. Yeah. Mm Um, so when we did the call for questions, yes. somebody had asked a question on return capital. Okay. They said, when you calculate ROIC, do you use net PPE or gross PPE? Uh, so I use net normally, but I also use gross. So um, this is the thing. People are always worried about like what's the exact right calculation or something. Yeah. And it really doesn't matter. It's just to answer the questions that you specifically have. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you do is easy. You just do net. It's simple. That's what yeah. you can figure uh-huh. out. But it is true that I use gross all the time. So like we are talking about Monarch Cement or something, they put a lot of money into cement plants. I need to figure out if their returns are only decent when using the numbers that have been depreciated a lot or they're decent on their original investment. Because in that business, PP&E is such a huge part of the business. Yeah. It would be a calculation you'd want to do for cruise lines or for railroads, those sorts of things. So cement plants, cruise lines, railroads, things that use an incredible amount of property, plant, and equipment and that have really old assets on the books. And if you don't know how old the assets are that a company has, just look at the depreciation schedule. If they have a lot of things that say that their useful life is 40 years or something like that, then those are a lot of old assets that they have. Mm-hmm. So um, you, you then use the gross number. And yes, I do use the gross number for a lot of those things. But it's only to answer a specific question about it, which is like that PP&E matters a lot there. For a lot of companies, I care more about like inventory or receivables. Like a retailer, I don't care about doing that calculation for PP&E. I care about, you know, how quickly they're turning their inventory. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh What are your thoughts on Greenblatt's uh, example of return on capital that he uses in the uh, return on invested capital that he uses for the magical formula? I think he just uses return on capital. I know, like I said, so many different definitions for the same exact thing. I mean, here's the simple thing. His is return on tangible capital. Okay. So the, the thing that I always suggest to people to do is just in their heads or whatever themselves. I mean, if you just look at like the balance sheet, you can do this yourself. Yeah. So you just have to take three assets generally. Mm-hmm. You just need three lines. You need receivables, you need inventory, and then you need property, plan, and equipment mm-hmm. at the values they're stated on the balance sheet at. And then on the other side, you just need to know uh, accrued uh, expenses and accounts payable. If you know those things and you net them off against each other, you have a pretty good guess of how much is invested in the business. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are other items, and there'll be all sorts of complicated items on there, but those numbers alone give you a really good of how the business actually works. Mm-hmm. So those are the lines to focus on. Another thing that we've done too is it's good to get segment information. Like mm-hmm. if a business has multiple different lines and really yeah. take like the capital that's invested in those businesses and then the returns that they generate on, on uh, yeah. off, off of that capital as well and do it you know across all business segments to really kind of get a feel for you know, like, like the different 
I guess, segments within the yeah, business. Yeah, because you find a lot of times huge differences in quality. And so yeah. if they invest a lot more in a business that's underperforming, you could have real problems there. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I wish would be Or like for more. Parks America, you know, you yeah. could do the, the returns on the park, right? And you right. Could, the one that's in, um, you know, Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. is good. And the one that's not is is, is not good. You know, you yeah. can kind of find that out from doing those calculations on the actual segments. Yeah, I'm sure that if they only had that one park, they'd have like a 30% return equity or higher after taxes. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but then you could also start to take a little bit further. Okay, well, what if management shuts down this park? What would the company look like? Absolutely, it kind of yeah. leads you a lot uh, down other tunnels is what, yeah, the way I like I to I mean, that, that happens all the time that I uh, bought a stock, BWX Technologies. Big reason why is I thought it had really high returns on capital in one business, and I thought they were going to exit the other businesses all yeah. the time. And uh-huh. that's what they did, and so it, then the stock went up a lot, and that's what you want to see. Yeah. What would you buy it at? Uh, Roughly, do you remember? Just twenty uh, some dollars. I don't remember twenty two. And do you remember what you sold it at? What's that today? Uh, I didn't check lately what it's at, but fifties uh, in the fifties. Yeah, yeah. And that was a spinoff. Yes. So I mean, actually, I fifty seven dollars. Okay. Yeah. Actually, what happened is I bought. It's more complicated than that. Why I can't give you the original number is I bought it before the spinoff, and then I sold the other part. Yeah. So less than what you see the spinoff on, which is I think the spinoff will show twenty some dollars, but then you got the other part of it, and I sold that part. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, but yeah, two, two or three times. Yeah, the stock's probably worth two or three times what it was selling for at the time of the spinoff. Yeah. Cool. Well, that is um, you know all we got today for return capital. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. Definitely check out our stuff on YouTube that is Focus Compounding, and check out Twitter as well, which is at Focus Compound. Subscribe to Jeff's weekly email list that goes out. You will get a free Overlook stock and also our watch list. Um, obviously, a lot of people like that. So if you're interested in that, uh, check that out. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.